Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast for this week's Ruminant. Um, I can't technically call it a um, smoking car episode because I am not in my car. My car is in Florida. I had to drive back with the big car because I brought the dogs back with me. Um, I should say that uh, this is brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. You can go to thedispatch.com to sign up for free newsletters like today's G-File um, or to get uh, member-only content by having a, a paid membership. And uh, you can also find out where the latest Hellmouth is opened up. I hear it's in Secaucus. So anyway, um, if I sound a little exhausted, it's only because I am. Um, I did that. We did a dispatch live video event thing last night. It was a lot of fun, probably the best one yet. And, um, but I made the, um, questionable decision of not only, um, over serving myself, uh, scotch, but I also, um, lit a cigar at eight o'clock at night and the buzz kept me awake most of the night. And, um, which you'd think the scotch would have fixed. And then the dogs got me up particularly early. And then it's just been a crazy day doing a whole bunch of stuff. I had a book talk. I did a, a zoom meeting or two, um, and, uh, attended to various dog needs. And, um, I'm now, uh, recording this one from home rather than in my car. So there you have it. Um, so let's see where to begin. Uh, the Wednesday, um, G-File product was a bit weird, I will grant you. Um, I had to power through, it's not writer's block. Um, I have, um, I write so much and, um, as I've talked about many times before, you know, when you write as much as I do, um, you really have certain, they're not tricks. They're just sort of psychological mechanisms you use to get yourself to write. Um, I personally don't believe in writer's block. I mean, I know some people have definitely had it. I think Norm Podoritz had it for 30 years. Um, but I, for me, it, writer's block isn't really a thing, but fear of writer's block is a thing. And I know that might sound weird to other people, but intellectually or psychologically, it makes sense to me. And there's a certain sense of panic you get when you can't come up with something to write about. And, um, I come up with certain, you know, particularly for the G file, which is kind of free association. I come up with weird sort of 
again, not tricks, but techniques for powering through when one of them is just, just literally vomiting up what comes out of my head and seeing where it takes me. And so I started with some weird questions like, um, how much would you have to be paid to take a pill that would result in your nostril hair growing like normal human hair um, and you wouldn't be allowed to cut it for at least five years. And we got some interesting responses on the site about this. A lot of people said there's no price. And I just, I just don't believe that. Um, I mean, I'm sure for some people, if you, you know, if you're already a billionaire, what's, what's another billion dollars or whatever, um, to do something so weird and gross, but for, um, like, I'm sure I've talked about this before, but among my friends, we have um, this thing called the Sid Goldberg rule, which is named after my dad. And it's a, um, it's a way of thinking about career decisions. Um, and the story behind it is I used to work for this guy, Ben Wattenberg. Um, one day I will have my old gang on and we will, you know, which includes people like Tevi, Troy, um, and also a bunch of people I've mentioned on the podcast. They're my closest friends of 25 years. And, um, and a bunch of us, we worked for Wattenberg and Ben was a complicated figure, right? Complicated. He was a interesting, a quirky guy. Um, and I just feel like it would be bad form to tell all of the sometimes very funny stories about Ben because they're all at his expense. Um, when the guy did give me my start, he gave me my first job at AI and all of that. But suffice it to say, after about two years of working with him, I really, or for him, I really didn't want to work for him anymore. I mean, really didn't want to. I just felt like I checked the box. I learned all I could learn. His management style drove me crazy. There were all sorts of things, the reasons for it. He's not, he was not a bad person, but um, there were just aspects of working for him that are a little bit like, I think, what some people working for Trump go through. Uh, lots of arbitrary uh, gut decisions that mess up a whole bunch of work that you've done um, on the, you know, to go chase some new whim kind of thing. Anyway, I was done. And I really wanted to work for the television production company that Ben Wattenberg had hired to produce his PBS show and it also did other things like documentaries and that stuff. And Ben wanted me to stay on and be his sort of chief of staff in all things. And he was like, you still get to be involved in the TV stuff, but you'd be working for me and blah, 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 blah. I just didn't want to do it. Just, I cannot begin to tell you how much I did not want to do it. And um, so I called my dad and, you know, my dad was always a good source of advice. And... I explained to him, I just really didn't want to work for him. I wanted to work for this production company and, but Ben didn't want me to, and Ben wanted me to stay with him. And my dad listened and then he said, okay, well then ask Wattenberg for more money. And I said, dad, you don't understand. I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm a spirit that must be free. There are these other things I want to do. Um, I cannot be contained. This is the end of the world. Yada, yada, yada. Full of like ambitious 20 something angst. And my dad listened. And then he said, okay, well then ask for 
a lot more money. And I was like, Daddy, you don't get it. And my dad cut me off and he said, no, you don't get it. And he explained, he said, look, anything that doesn't violate your morals or your principles has a price. And I was like, well, that's crazy. And I didn't really understand what he was saying. And and I was convinced that I was not wanting to work for Ben on some grand principle, which really wasn't true. <clears throat> anyway, so my dad cut me off again and he said, look, how do I explain this to you? He says, and my dad almost never cursed. Um, he says, I would happily, not grudgingly, not reluctantly, not bitterly, but happily eat dog shit for $1 billion. <laughs> and, and so all of a sudden I sort of understood what he meant. And, and this is actually, I think, really great career advice for people um, is that, you know, you know, you should not do anything that violates your morals or your principles. So, you know, if someone, if, if you think it's evil to be an arms dealer, you shouldn't think it's less evil if you can get really rich at it. You know, if you think it's evil to be a pornographer or an abortion doctor or any of those kinds of things, you shouldn't do it and price shouldn't enter into the equation. But if you just think it's gross to like clean up roadkill on a highway, um, there's no moral principle there. You just are too proud or you, um, or you think it's too gross or, or whatever, and you just don't want to do it. But there is at some point a price that you would be willing to pay to overcome, be paid to overcome the grossness of it. And, um, you know, for a lot of young people who are trying to figure out what they want to do, I mean, this is a weird time to tell this story, given that a lot of people are out of work and I understand all of that. But, um, you know, if it's just simply pride or something like that, that can be overcome with money. Your morals and your principles can't be. But um, if it doesn't violate those, just set a price that would make you happy to do it. And frankly, I don't know what my price is for this nostril hair thing. And I'd have to consult with my wife because if she left me, that wouldn't be worth it. That's a serious cost benefit analysis thing. If I had two little tiny ponytails coming out of my nose. But, um, um, but if it's, but I have no moral objection to it. I have no aesthetic objection to it. And so, as I said to one of the readers in the replies, I said, look, you know, I'm confident that I would do it for $5 billion. I am confident that I wouldn't do it for $5. The question is where between those two goalposts I would end up to be willing to do it. And anyway, I just think it's a worthwhile way to think about stuff. Um, but anyway, that's a weird way to start what turned into a G file about eschatology. And um, if you listen to the normal remnant that came out uh, today, this morning, that I did with David French, we did it all on, not all of it. We also talked about the Snyder Cut and some other stuff, but we talked a lot about um, eschatology. And the reason why eschatology was in my head is that I did this interview with Doug Wilson, who interviewed me for his show. And Doug Wilson is a pretty prominent um, theologian guy or religious writer and thinker. And, um, and he began the interview, like right out of the gate, wanted to talk to me about eschatology, which is like, I know what it is. <laughs> I'm, uh, I have some views on it, but it is not something like I'm exactly like, put me in coach. I'm ready to play. 
It's not one of those topics for me. <clears throat> you know, if you wanted to talk about Italian fascism or uh, original Star Trek or my dogs, um, I wouldn't feel the need to do a lot of prep work. But eschatology, I, I, I wish I had realized that that's what he wanted to talk about in advance. Anyway, it was a really interesting conversation. But because it was this new thing for me to be thinking about, afterwards I just had all of this, you know, uh, what's the French phrase, esprit d'escalier, which means, you know, the spirit of the stairs. And it's their term for um, going, man, I wish I had said that. Or, um, you know, it's, it's like uh, George Costanza in Seinfeld with the jerk store thing, if he had only said it at the time kind of a thing. Anyway, so it was in my head. And I, I think it's a really interesting topic. Doug Wilson seemed to be arguing, well, he was arguing, or at least suggesting, suggesting that um, the real source of our polarization and our, um, you know, uh, social unrest and malaise or whatever labels you want to put on it, um, is because we lack a common eschatology and all eschatology means is, is in, at least in Christian theology or only in theology, because every religion, almost every religion has some concept of eschatology. I don't think Buddhists do, um, which should tell you something, uh, it just means the end times, the end of the world, the ultimate fate of humanity. And um, um, and I think it's an interesting proposition that when you no longer have a vision for how the world is going to end, what does that do to your society? And, you know, the interesting thing is, is that there are some visions of how the world ends that really aren't like goals people are striving for. They're pretty pessimistic understandings, you know. I mean, certainly if you subscribe to the view that the world ends uh, with a horrible zombie apocalypse, I'm not sure that has, um, unless you think you can prevent it, I'm not sure that has a lot of, um, it I'm not sure that it creates a lot of incentives to do different, do things differently now society-wide um, other than like, you know, start stocking up on toilet paper and ammo. But um, anyway, so I, the, you know, his point is, is that, you know, in Christian eschatology, you're supposed to be aiming for, you know, the wrapping up of the whole story. And, and that's what we're progressing towards. And you, it helps you think about what kind of life you're living now. And I think it's interesting. I think one of the problems, which I pointed out then and in the G file was that, um, there's an assumption in there that makes me nervous. And, and Wilson was the first to point out in our conversation that, you know, Marxists have an eschatology. They have this view that the wheel of history is moving in a certain direction and they have certainty about what direction it's going. And so therefore, um, they have, um, you know, permission, they give themselves permission to accelerate the turning of the wheel towards that ultimate wonderful thing where, you know, the state withers away and capitalism goes away and everyone lives according to their needs, um, not their abilities and yada, 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 all that stuff. Right. And, you know, one of the things I've always found interesting about Marxist eschatology, and I, and I, and I think it's the right way to think about it. I've, I've argued this at great length that, uh, Marxism, uh, while it always claimed to be scientific, very quickly basically turned into what um, Eric Vogelin would call a political religion. And it maps really well on a lot of religious narratives about, 
you know, the cycles of history and how we're heading to this golden age. And one of the things that's interesting about Marxist eschatology is that the envisioned utopia at the end of history is very much like what Rousseau claimed man lived like in a state of nature. And for Marx, he kind of takes, you know, everyone talk, you know, the, the cliche is to say that Marx stood Hegel on his head, but in some ways he kind of stood Rousseau on his head because he basically said, whether it was true about the ancient past, um, where we lived like noble savages and were happy and content and in harmony with nature, he thought that that's how we were going to end up, at least if, if he and his team had its way and were right about the end of times and all that. And the question is, is there a conservative eschatology? And if you, if you don't mean by that a Christian eschatology, I just don't know that there is one, nor do I think that there should be one. Um, but anyway, I talked about that at length with David, and I don't need to repeat all of that all that here. The only thing that makes me nervous about talking about eschatology is that once you start talking about how you have a final destination that we're all supposed to be going towards, that gives um, political actors permission to try and herd everybody in a single direction. And I don't, that is not the kind of politics that I like. It's not the kind of political philosophy that I like. But anyway, I thought it was all very, very interesting. Um, today's G-File, um, I don't even know how to describe it. There are fewer jokes, less nostril hair, um, but it's um, about how um, we, we, we think weirdly about what is arbitrary and what is not. And I don't want to just regurgitate the whole thing for you here. Hopefully you'll read it. It's free, so everyone can. But um, um, I had started out, so I started out, This is, again, this is one of the perils you have when you don't know what you're going to write, which I almost, I would say eight out of 10 G files, I have very little idea of, of where it's going to end up when I start. Sometimes I have a kernel of idea and then I just start exploring it and, you know, wandering around like a mental patient in the snow until I say, okay, I got to stop typing now. But I'd wanted to sort of write about this. Um, Ezra Klein has an interesting piece sort of surveying the, um, the, this, this, the political psychology literature, uh, which is a subject I'm increasingly interested in. Um, if I had to, if I had to think of one of the few things that I've not completely by any stretch, and I can get into that in a second, but considerably changed my mind on in the last 10 years. It's the relevance of, of psychological research into politics. There's still a lot of garbage in it, um, in that realm, not Jonathan Haidt. I think Jonathan Haidt is a brilliant guy and has got a lot of important and interesting things to contribute, but there's a long history going back to Theodore Adorno, who was one of the Frankfurt school Marxists, this guy, um, I think it's Herbert McCloskey, um, Richard Hofstetter got into a lot of this that tries to use psychology entirely to explain not so much politics, but why conservatives are dumb or irrational or bad and all this kind of stuff. And some of the science with that stuff, I think is borderline phrenology. And I have a, and phrenology was the science of studying intelligence and, and human nature by the shape of people's skulls. And whenever I hear, um, some people getting too deep into this. I always want to shout, break out the calipers. But anyway, um, 
And I still, again, I still think there's a, a lot of garbage stuff and a lot of wild overinterpretation that goes on in that stuff. I thought the Republican brain book was really bad. Um, I've written about it a bunch. I've written, uh, there were some studies that came out in the mid 2000s that claimed to show that the, there's a psychological profile that explained why Rush Limbaugh, like George W. Bush, Benito Mussolini, and Adolf Hitler all shared a similar psychological orientation. And I just think that's garbage for reasons I'll get into in a second. But um, on the other hand, I do think that psychology has um, more interesting things to say about politics than it used to. I think some of the research has gotten better and, and more persuasive. And so I started out by quoting from, uh, by mentioning the movie Goodwill Hunting, which uh, is one of these movies that I really like, even though I hate it. Um, and I sort of explained that a little bit in the G file, but I'm sure some of you have, you know, movies like this that, you know, piss you off on some level or that you profoundly disagree with, but at the same time, they're just, you know, eminently watchable and compelling for sort of other reasons. You know, American president is one of these movies. I, I mean, I can't tell you much. How I, I loathe so much of that movie and yet when it's on, I end up watching for a while. I kind of like the West Wing and kind of like almost everything political Aaron Sorkin ever did, except for that truly awful show, uh, Newsroom, which I thought was Sorkin's jump the shark moment in, in, in political screenwriting or whatever. But anyway, so I started out with Goodwill Hunting because um, I wanted to just reference this line about... Um, Remember, there's this scene where he's, uh, where Skyler, um, I can't remember the actress's name, even though I'm very fond of her, the uh, ridiculously tall British woman. Thrilled to have her on the show. Please welcome Minnie Driver. Um, Skyler asks uh, Matt Damon out for coffee. And Matt Damon has this, what I would argue is remarkably douchey line. Um, so maybe we can go out for coffee sometime. All right, yeah, maybe we could just get together and eat a bunch of caramels. And she's like, huh? And he's saying, well, when you think about it, it's just as arbitrary to think about, it's just as ar arbitrary to say, let's meet for eating caramels as it is to say, let's drink coffee. And the reason why I think it's so douchey is that it's just such a, you know, seemingly clever um, thing to say of a certain kind of sophomoric uh, bright kid who took one too many postmodernism classes. Um, and I wanted to get into it because I wanted to bring it up to say how notions of left and right are kind of arbitrary too. But then I just started thinking about this arbitrary thing and it took me in a completely different direction. So I'll talk about the left and the right thing in a minute and just very quickly cover the arbitrary point that I actually wrote about, because I didn't write about left and right. I wrote about capitalism and, and spontaneous order and all these things. Um, so First of all, it's not arbitrary to drink coffee. There are reasons why we drink coffee in this country. There are reasons why culturally it became a norm to meet people over coffee. Uh, there are all sorts of reasons for it. They weren't planned reasons. And this is sort of one of the points I'm getting at is that just because there are things that we do that weren't planned, that doesn't make them arbitrary. 
Um, arbitrary means done on a whim or done randomly. Um, and that's not how coffee became an institution. And so I liken it to uh, stoplights, right? In, in a certain sense, in a certain sort of clever goodwill hunting sense, the fact that we use red and green for stop and go and traffic lights is arbitrary. There's nothing, there's no reason why we couldn't say green means stop and red means go. But it turns out that, first of all, there are reasons why we picked red and green. Um, apparently, originally it was red and white, with white meaning go and red meaning stop. The reason why they chose red is red for years, for centuries before we ever had traffic lights, red meant danger. It was a warning color for danger. So it made sense to say stop. And also traffic lights didn't begin with cars. They began with trains. And you can see why danger um, would even be more relevant for a train. And so originally they had white as go, but then what happened was like in 1920, the red filter on the light had fallen off. And so it was lit up for, um, for stop. It was supposed to be red, but the, since the filter was gone, it looked white because the underneath lamp just was white. And so some train barreled through a stoplight and there was a big train accident. So they went with red for stop and then green for go. Um, and the reason they picked yellow, and green used to mean caution or what we use for yellow now. And they picked yellow because yellow was the easiest co color to differentiate between the other two colors. So anyway, it's not arbitrary. But even if it were arbitrary, right, even if it was just, you know, um, some random decision made by somebody, um, that doesn't the arbitrariness doesn't matter after a very short period of time because societies adapt and they work around arbitrary things. Um, for example, I'm a big fan of artificial reefs. I think artificial reefs are really cool. Um, there's an enormous amount of, of data out there that say they actually increase fish populations when done right. You know, in the Gulf of Mexico, they require oil derricks it used to be that you're supposed to remove them, but it turned out they were so good for fish populations that now you have to sink them because it's better for the fishing industry and it's better for the ecosystem. And I think there are all sorts of places where the ocean floor is essentially a desert where it would be great if we created vast networks of artificial reefs. Anyway, one of the reasons why I got hooked on this point was a friend of mine uh, Ron Bailey, who was into artificial reefs, he pointed out to me, he's like, if you throw a cinder block into the ocean, um, in a very short order of time, um, fish will come, plants will attach to it, barnacles will attach to it, and very quickly, it will essentially just be as if it were a piece of coral. Coral's better, okay, but um, a cinder block will do. And um, and so in the, I don't write about reefs in the G file, but I write about trees. You know, you could plant a tree arbitrarily someplace, or, you know, the wind could drop a seed arbitrarily randomly in some place. But once it starts to grow, the arbitrariness becomes irrelevant because birds will occupy it. Squirrels will set up their terror networks inside of it. Um, and for those birds and those squirrels, what was planted for arbitrary reasons becomes a home becomes a distinct and unique place that has profound meaning to them. And yes, I'm doing this as a metaphor because the same thing works in human societies where, you know, um, as I point out 
um, one of the worst things, one of the nastiest things that the Brits did um, when they were conquering, you know, in colonies or colonizing places was they would chop down or burn down big shade trees, which played a huge role in these various sort of societies. So there were places where people gathered. Um, they were, you know, part of civil society and it was a major way of disrupting civil society to get rid of them. And it caused populations to disperse from places when they lost their shade trees. And so there are all sorts of things. So like I liken it to a factory in a factory town. The guy who puts a, fa a widget factory in Peoria may have done so for the, just the dumbest, most random reasons. But then humans, sort of like the squirrels and the birds or the fish with the reefs, they start assigning meaning and importance and, and adapting to it in their lives. And one of the things... Um, that is so disruptive about capitalism is that capitalism will from time to time get rid of things like those factories. And it's very disruptive to people's lives. And it's the downside of capitalism. Um, you know, whether you want to call it creative destruction or something else. And so the point I was trying to make by getting, well, I didn't know I was trying to make this point until I got into it is that we should acknowledge that this is a problem of capitalism. Um, it's one of the downsides of capitalism, but it is a net benefit for humanity that this process goes on, even if it is a net detriment for the specific people that it affects. You know, the, the Luddites who tried to smash or did smash cotton mills and, and wool mills in England, they were right that those mills were disruptive and dangerous to their livelihoods. But it was better for humanity in the long run that we had cotton mills and wool mills rather than relying on hand labor. Um, and that same process goes on. But even if you really hate all of that and really dislike it, you still have the issue of, and therefore what, you know, okay. So capitalism destroys good things. Um, it also destroys a lot of bad things. You know, it was one of the reasons why we got rid of monarchy and slavery and serfdom and, and lots of sexism and bigotry is that the market, you know, the market erodes good customs and bad customs, and it's great when it erodes bad customs, but we can acknowledge that it's not so great when it erodes good customs or good institutions. Um, but there's this therefore and therefore what problem. It's fine to say that this is a problem with capitalism and we need to figure out ways to ameliorate um, the worst aspects of all that. I'm in favor of that, you know, and if it's unemployment benefits or if it's job retraining, so long as that stuff works, I'm totally open to that kind of wonkery. But what I passionately disagree with is the, the, is, is, is taking the argument further than that and saying, no, 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 we need to get beyond capitalism. We need to replace it with a system where we write the rules to protect the little guy. We write the rules to, um, you know, uh, attend to certain constituencies, um, that we think are more deserving, the forgotten man, the little guy, whatever. Um, because capitalism doesn't work. Freedom doesn't work, but capitalism doesn't work unless you have clear rules that apply to everybody. If you had a system where you said, okay, I know better. And therefore these specific kinds of people don't have to stop when they see a red light. Um, first of all, you get a lot of people killed. Um, but second of all, you get a lot of people who would no longer 
obey the traffic rules either. You know, once it becomes a system that doesn't apply to everybody, everybody, you know, you have a tragedy of the commons where everybody just starts looking out for their own interest and refusing to abide by the common rules. And um, so much of the anti-capitalism stuff from Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some of the nationalism stuff on the right basically wants to argue for smarter, better planners who are smarter than the market and can um, not necessarily, they wouldn't say arbitrarily, they would say with wisdom and foresight, outthink the market about, you know, where to plant the trees as it were. And the, among the myriad problems with that, and I'm not going to get into a big uh, thing about Hayek and the knowledge problem. Um, but among the myriad problems with that is that people respond to incentives. And if you send out the signal, you know, a very powerful signal to a society that says, um, you no longer, um, make a profit primarily by trying to meet the needs of consumers, um, in the best way possible, um, and better than your competitors, but instead you need to meet the ideological or aesthetic or moral, um, criteria of the rulers, you all of a sudden get an economy where people are organizing themselves around trying to gain favor from the ruling class. And you might get a different ruling class than we have today. I don't really think we quite have a ruling class, but you might get different rich and powerful people than you have today. But you would also have a system where um, the rulers basically get to write the rules for themselves. And since we've gotten rid of this idea of clear and universally applicable rules that apply to everybody, you just get yourself on a path to where the, the planners and the bureaucrats become empowered to do whatever they think is best, and they end up rewarding, the, rewarding their cronies. And the ultimate system looks a lot like what you have in Russia today, where the oligarchs can do what they want, but their first priority has to be to please Putin um, and protect Putin's you know, uh, mob, mobster-like rule. And a little bit like China. I mean, China at least is making its people richer, which is not a small thing. But you still, the first thing is the one thing you can't do, you know, the first rule in Chinese business is you can do whatever you want so long as you don't screw with the Communist Party or the rulers. And, um, and it's worth pointing out, you know, every country that had some sort of revolution Let's just stipulate, obviously I disagree, but let's just stipulate that they had the best motives, right? That Castro and Hugo Chavez and Pol Pot and, uh, you know, Hitler and Stalin and Lenin and you know, take your pick. Let's just assume that they all really meant the best version of their propaganda about helping the, the little guys and, and, and rising, raising up the proletariat and all of these things. Let's assume they believed it. Once they set up a system that gave them cells, unchecked power, you ended up with the kind of system that I am describing where, which was basically the system of every form of government prior to 1700, where 
anything you did had to be first and foremost at the pleasure of the ruler. And as long as you were in the ruler's favor, you could lock, you could, you could have serfs, you could um, have monopolies, you could do all sorts of terrible things. I'm not sure that Prima Nocta from Braveheart actually existed, but let's just assume that it did. So you could bed women on their, on their wedding night, you know, all, you know, all that kind of stuff. And as long as you didn't question the established order, and as long as you paid your, you know, paid the vig to the ruler, uh, you could do what you want. And that system is worse for the little guy. Now, who gets defined as the little guy might change a little bit, but it's still worse for people. The people who benefit the most from clear rules that apply to everybody are the little guys. Because once you, and I know I have a broken record on this stuff, and it feels so weird saying these things over and over again, but um, you know, complexity is a subsidy. If you make a society crazy complex with lots of red tape and lots of rules and lots of hidden sort of social cues that signify that you're on the inside, right? You know, these shibboleths that get you into the best schools, you know? I mean, I, I think I said this before too, but like the Asian kids who got rejected from Harvard, um, they weren't rejected because they were Asian. That was the disparate impact of it. Um, they were rejected because they came from sort of bourgeois immigrant families that still thought that going to the best college you can was a ticket to the American dream and that they actually liked the idea that you could go and get a degree and then get a really good paying job. Um, and they didn't much care about all the social justice nonsense. And that's what got them is that they didn't know how to talk the talk. Um, and they had, they had transcripts that didn't have them, you know, uh, digging latrines in some, you know, third world village or, uh, you know, providing counseling to transgender prostitutes in the inner city. They had summer jobs where they worked for their parents' dry cleaning business or their, you know, their grocery store or whatever. And their transcripts were all about getting the best grades and doing everything good to go to the best school. And they didn't play the game of talking the right language. And there's an enormous amount of that kind of stuff that goes on in any society. And the more you keep that stuff to a minimum, you can never fully get rid of it. But the more you can keep it to a minimum, the more open and free and prosperous a country you're going to be. And the more the guys who are locked out, who didn't go to the right schools and don't know the right stuff will have a chance. Um, I know I talk about Ron Bailey a lot, but Ron, Ron grew up poor in a, on a rural community in, in Western Virginia. You can't say West Virginia, them's fighting words, but Western Virginia. And he always talked about how the SAT saved his life because Ron is a brilliant guy. And here was this test that was, that everybody had to take. And um, you didn't have to know the right people, right? I mean, this is sort of like when the Chinese um, bureaucracy, um, you know, in, you know, 500 years ago was at its best, was this idea of pure meritocracy that, you know, just the people, you know, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, Thomas Jefferson created the University of Virginia, where Ron ended up going to, is that he wanted to, you know, what was it? He was, rake the garden of democracy for the best. 
And it's why the founding fathers got rid of titles of nobility and all of that stuff, because they thought that we should allow, you know, the best, most qualified people to rise up on their own merits. And a system that has those kinds of rules where you can do that is better in the long run for the little guy, at least for the little guy who really wants to try. Right. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I want to set up a society where, you know, notions of merit are completely absent. And we take this attitude that, you're, oh, you're born into a low station of life. We'll make that as comfortable for you as possible. Right? That's that's really close to the kind of serfdom that, you know, Hayek talks about. And it's actually even closer to serfdom. Anyway, so that's what I went into and all that. So anyway, I, I know I'm rambling here. Um, what did I say I was going to talk about? Oh, left and right. So I started out trying to write the G file to talk about how left and right kind of are these arbitrary terms and they don't really, they aren't as helpful, um, as people make them out to be. And so, you know, first of all, uh, just in case you didn't know, we get left and right from the. French National Assembly or the Etat General or whatever it was called um, around the time of pre-revolutionary France. And the supporters of the monarchy sat on the right in the room. So it was like the clergy, the nobility, um, that crowd sat on the right. And these were the reactionaries or whatever. You know, at some points they called them the, the party of it's on the left, you had the people who wanted to, you know, at the extreme end, wanted to overthrow monarchy, but you also had the good classical liberals that I talked about a little bit, I think that was last week, and other, and the sort of bourgeois business people who resented that even though they worked hard and made a lot of money and, you know, um, and, and, and built a business up, uh, they were still seen as second class to these crapulent aristocrats who simply were living off of the value of their name and the fact that some ancient ancestor of theirs, you know, helped conquer some part of Normandy or something. And so at one point, I think they called the left side, the party of movement and the right side, the party of order. And there's some value in, in thinking of it in those terms, I think. Um, but I'll, but not so much anymore. So anyway, that's where left and right come from. And one of the great frustrations I have in a sort of a pedantic kind of way is you may not have noticed, but we actually don't have a French system here. We don't come from the French tradition of politics. We come from the Anglo tradition of politics. And they didn't divide their parliament. And, you know, and again, the National Assembly really wasn't a parliament per se, but uh, the British had a real parliament and, um, it was divided, um, completely differently. The, the, I, I'm going to mess this up, but you'll get the gist. My understanding is, is that you sat where you sat in the chamber depended upon whether or not you were on the, the government side or in the opposition. And so, um, sort of like on the right were the yeas and on the left were the nays, to put it really kind of simply. Um, and that had nothing to do with 
an ideological position because the gov- the nature of the government can change from year to year or from, you know, decade to decade. And so this whole concept of left and right is, you know, I'm trying to stop with the French bashing, but it's a filthy French import. And it never really applied to British politics and it really didn't apply to American politics. Um, and yet somehow it has become entrenched. So anyway, that brings me to this, this psychological stuff. Um, Ezra Klein has this interesting piece where he talks about how the, 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 the psychological literature, there's a rough consensus that says, quote unquote, conservatives are more, have a heightened fear of, of contamination and of disease. And, um, and let's just take all notions of Republican and Democrat, liberal and conservative as political things out of this for two seconds. I think that there's probably a lot of truth to that, that there are certain people who by temperament and by nature or by genetic or congenital or epigenetic, you know, epigenetic, I don't, we can talk about the nature and nurture stuff some other time, but I think there are people who are just simply more driven by fear of change and fear of disease. And one of, and fear of disease is a big thing in human evolution. Um, for most of human history, disease was our number one foe. It killed more of us than anybody else, anything else. And all sorts of customs and norms and all sorts of societies have built up around hygiene Hygiene is really a, an important part of your brain structure when it comes to politics. And, um, and it can make politics kind of irrational because people aren't actually aware that it plays a role. Um, you know, I mean, again, taking out contemporary political fights out of it for just two seconds, the anti, an, an, a, a, a blanket anti-immigrant thing is is really caught up in our wiring and it has to do with the danger of strangers bringing diseases. Um, there's all sorts of things like this. There's also, you know, the, the role that food plays in culture and in human psychology is massive and foreign food triggers all sorts of things. And it could be overcome. Obviously Americans have one of the most awesomely diverse diets of any society, but, um, and I mean, in terms of diversity of cuisines, um, but anyway, so I think there's, there's some truth there. Um, the problem I have, and, and, and Ezra Klein, who I've had a, <laughs> an odd relationship with, to call it, and that's a bit of a misnomer, but I'm, you know, I, I think sometimes he does smart stuff and interesting stuff, and I think he's matured a lot, and I've matured a lot, and whatever, and so I'm not going to revisit all past things. But um, the... Where I th- he acknowledges to a certain extent that this stuff can be swamped by other considerations, that partisan intensity can be more important. Um, but under normal circumstances, particularly given the fact that Trump himself is a germaphobe, um, and that Trump and a lot of the right went nuts about the Ebola stuff under Obama, you would kind of, if you were just going to describe a scenario in the abstract, you would kind of think that the right would be more concerned about the coronavirus than the left, but it's not. And I think that's interesting. And again, I'm, I didn't end up writing about it and I don't want to go too far afield with this, but what brings me back to the left and right stuff is that I, 
it is very difficult for me to see how some of some of the psychological literature makes sense when you start factoring in um, multicultural or, or 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 comparative cultural comparative studies, right? Um, just to give you an example, going back to that ridiculous stuff from fifteen or ten years ago, um, to say that. Um, Benito Mussolini and um, Rush Limbaugh, particularly Rush Limbaugh circa, say, 2006, have the same psychological orientation towards politics is bizarre to me. Or, or let's say, forget Rush Limbaugh, because he's kind of a moving target these days. They also included Ronald Reagan in this stuff. Now, I wrote a book about fascism. I know a little bit about Benito Mussolini. First of all, Benito Mussolini got his start on the left. He earned his title of Il Duce um, when he was still one of the most important socialists in Europe. He was hailed as the, the Il Duce of the socialists. He was an atheist. Um, he used to brag in classrooms. He used, to, he used to taunt God by saying, if God exists, I demand he strike me dead with a lightning bolt right now. Um, he was a widely respected revolutionary socialist and um he moved rightward after world war one he wanted to bring back the socialism of the trenches is what he called it which was like this sort of esprit de corps and 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 you know socialism i can get really deep in the weeds about socialism here because socialism had a different connotation back then it didn't necessarily mean purely economics it had this whole stuff about egalitarianism and overthrowing elites and all of that kind of thing. But anyway, he was in every way a radical. And um, he switched to fascism because it sold better. And I'm not going to redo my entire sort of liberal fascism stuff, but um, the reason why one of the main reasons why fascism got to be labeled right wing is that it was originally in its time understood and declared to be right wing socialism. Um, and if you look at the actual platform, the Italian fascist ran on, it was full of socialist planks. It was, so was the national socialist thing in Germany. And um, the, you know, and, and, you know, and Hitler famously said he was not a he was not a monarchist and he wasn't a conservative. He was a nationalist. Um, there is this um, deep radicalism involved in all of these sorts of fascist movements. And anyway, the reason why it got called right wing was in part because it was right wing socialism. And then over time, they just kind of sawed off the socialism part when they were trying to denigrate it. But the bigger part of it was that uh, Joseph Stalin saw that these national socialist movements were eating their lunch, uh, eating the communist lunch across Europe and, and to a certain extent in the United States. And so he came up with, with what he called the social theory of fascism, which held, uh, you know, the salient point that it held was that if you weren't loyal to Moscow, then you were a fascist, right? It didn't matter whether you were proposing a sweeping socialist reform movement or a progressive thing. Um, if you didn't recognize that Moscow was the leader of the international communist movement, 
um, then you were a fascist and therefore right wing and the enemy. And that's why for a period of time, communists in America who were still loyal to, to, to Moscow called FDR a fascist. They called John Dewey a fascist. They called Norman Thomas, the head of the Socialist Party in America, a fascist. And, um, and so this idea that um, the psychology that makes you want to be a radical to tear down the established order in 1920s Italy somehow is the same psychology of Ronald Reagan is just ludicrous to me. And, um, um, and yet that has been this game that starting with Adorno and McCloskey and all these people they've, they've been playing for a long time is trying to come up with this way of linking, you know, these radical movements to, to American conservative movements. Now, all that said, right. So I, I stand by all that. Um, I do think that the psychology stuff remains kind of interesting, but, and I think it tells us some important things, but I don't think the attempt to say, okay, uh, the people who fear change are conservative and the people who like change are liberal because, um, I just don't think that's how the psychology works. And the, the fact that Ezra notes that, and some of these psychologists that you talk to notes that partisanship can swamp fear of contagion, I think should shed some light on how um, all sorts of other political considerations can um, swamp these psychological tendencies. And so, for example, I mean, this idea that, that you know, you're a right winger if you fear change. Tell me that. Tell me. So does that mean the, you know, the teachers unions are right wing? You know, they're against school choice. They're against vouchers. They're against charter schools. Um, they're vested interests who are protecting what they have. And yet, um, you know, and they fear change. Are the people who are anti-nuclear power? Are the people who are anti-GMOs? Um, uh, are they now right wingers? Um, or does their fear of change manifest itself in a different ideological context? You know, I mean, I, I've made this point a million times, but, um, you know, one of the uh, best essays on conservatism I've ever read, hugely influential on me, was um, by Samuel Huntington in like 1956, I'm guessing, sometime in the 50s where he wrote about, it's called conservatism as an ideology. And he points out that conservatism and radicalism are the only two recognizable ideological schools that actually don't um, have any content to them. And what he means by that, I'm not saying that there's no content to conservatism, but it's all situational, right? So a conservative in, um, 17th in, you know, revolutionary France is someone who wants to maintain the monarchy. He doesn't want that change, but a conservative in, in 1980s France is someone who's basically in favor of the free market. Um, and I'm going drive my dad crazy how the media would refer to the most adamant communists in the Soviet Politburo as the conservatives. Um, Conservatism has 
only meaning when you know what people are trying to conserve. And the American political context, up until at least recently, what conservatives were trying to conserve was this radical revolutionary thing enshrined in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Scottish and English Enlightenment. So it was this stuff, you know, that the that I talked about last week about, you know, the classical liberals in France. Um, that's the stuff that we wanted to conserve. And um, that is the stuff that in Europe, the supposedly similar, sim, the, the similarly psychologically disturbed people um, hated. And so I, I, I think that this, the moral foundations theory stuff that Haidt writes about, and I want, I've been wanting to do a big essay about all of this, about, you know, I often say how if I had it to write, if I had to do it over again today, I would write liberal fascism differently. It's in large part because of this stuff, and I don't want to give up the store here. But the the point I'm trying to make, and I know I'm rambling again, is that these tendencies tend to amplify existing ideological orientations. So, like, you know, a lot of the moral panics we've had about, you know, uh, tainted food or the ALAR scare or pesticides or phone lines and all of that kind of stuff. Um, that supposedly is supposed to be like more on the right, but I see a lot more of it, or at least I've seen a lot more of it on the left, or at the very least, it's pretty evenly distributed along both sides. And the same thing with, you know, fear of change, um, us versus them. These things are part of the human condition. They're part of human wiring. And I don't think that we actually sort into political parties based on them. Instead, the positions and arguments within those parties or within these partisan camps get amplified in different ways by them. And um, so you can have in a psychological sense, extremely conservative people in the Democratic Party. You know, I mean, I mean, how many times every five years where, you know, we hear people, you know, in the same way that we talk about conservatives, at least used to talk about getting back to the Constitution, getting back to the principles of the founding. Countless prominent liberals talk about getting back to the principles of the New Deal. Every few years, somebody writes, some left-winger writes, um, you know, how we need to get back to FDR's second Bill of Rights or the Economic Bill of Rights, which was an outrageous document um, in all sorts of ways, which I'm happy to discuss sometime. Um, uh, how is that psychologically less, quote unquote, conservative than wanting to get back to the principles of the founding? At least the principles of the founding were, um, you know, uh, you know, about human liberty and all of these kinds of things, which would be, you know, in, in most contexts, would be understood as 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 you know liberal, um, you know, anti-status quo, it's not reactionary or anything like that, and um, and so this sort of gets me to this thing that I talk about all the time. It's a big part of my book talk, you know, about looking for things in human 
affairs that would be recognizable to somebody 500 years ago or 5,000 years ago. And the example I always use, I'm sure I've done it on this thing, is, you know, North Korea. North Korea would be utterly recognizable to someone from 500 or 5,000 years ago as a monarchy, as an imperial monarchy or an absolute monarchy or some form of monarchy, right? You're, you inherit your rule from your father. It's basically primogeniture unless you can get away with killing your older brother, very similar to the, you know, to the way they did it in Caesar's time. And you have castes and classes. There are serfs in North Korea. There's something like 51 different uh, castes in the hierarchy of who's good and who's bad in, in North Korea. Um, there's magical and mystical explanations about where, you know, the supreme leader derives his blessed anointedness, all of these kinds of things. And yet, according to the categories that we have, maybe, maybe not right now, I think people are finally recognizing this about North Korea, but 15 years ago, you would talk about North Korea being a left-wing regime. And, um, you know, because it was called itself communist and Marxist, it doesn't really call itself that stuff anymore, by the way. But the point is, is that, you know, it's left wing and right wing are not useful in this context because unless you're just trying to score up, you know, points on how their team has worse dictators than our team does. And frankly, I would argue that in some sense, there's some truth to that, but it, it's less and less meaningful to me. I, I, one of the chapters I had to pull from the suicide of the West, which I keep meaning to run someplace else was all about how the Soviet Union, um, once Stalin solidified his power and then in earnest when he needed to uh, galvanize and mobilize for uh, World War II, the country fully embraced nationalism. It became the great patriotic war for Mother Russia. It's not, that's not workers of the world unite anymore. Um, it sort of embracing all of this sort of nationalist, traditionalist, folk Russian stuff. Um, and a lot of useful idiots in the West didn't really see it or they apologized for it because they were on that team. And that's another example. I'm not saying Trump is Stalin, but it's another example of how essentially partisanship can swamp your, um, your psychological priors um, and even a lot of your ideological priors. I mean, there is nothing inherently rational or sane for someone who actually believes in communism still supporting Stalin, you know, even f a year after he takes power. I mean, it should have been to a rational person obvious that this guy was just a dictator. But, but these psychological things and these ideological things can get all screwed up in part because of this, 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 this other part of evolutionary psychology and political psychology that I'm all into called the coalition instinct is that once you decide someone's on your team, in your tribe, you can apologize or rationalize or be rendered blind to all sorts of internal inconsistencies on your own side. And, um, and I don't want to get into Trump stuff, but I mean, I just marvel at the way all of these Republicans are talking about how incoherent and mentally unfit or how dangerous to women Joe Biden is without even thinking for a moment that virtually everything that they say, whether it's true or not, and all that kind of stuff, can at least equally be applied to Donald Trump. People are embracing standards 
they're, wepo- they're weaponizing standards to use against the other side and exempting their own side from them entirely. And the, that's what the coalition instinct does. It allows you to be really internally inconsistent to the eye of somebody outside of the coalition because within the coalition, within the team, the, the, the animating passion is the team. And you still hold on to your other principles, but you only apply them selectively to the other. And I think that is a better way of understanding how this psychological stuff plays into politics. It does not predict, I would argue, very many policy positions, at least not very reliably. It does predict internal dynamics within coalitions, within groups, within parties, in all sorts of interesting ways. It activates, I mean, maybe this is an epigenetics thing. It activates certain aspects of human nature in interesting ways um, that I think are worthy of more study. So anyway, I'm done with all that. Um, And I know I'm long, so I'm just going to sort of wrap it up. I did want to throw, you know, it's going to be a while until we do another half-baked ideas thing, but I'd be curious, this is, I'll put it at 12.5% baked. But you know how I was talking before about uh, artificial reefs? That's part of my larger concern. I really, you know, I think global warming is real. We talked about that with Ron. Um, I don't think it's the calamity that a lot of people are, you know, that, that Greta Thunberg claims it is or any of that kind of stuff. But I think it's a real challenge, a real problem. I think Ron is right that the, the question is that it's not an existential threat or anything like that, but that the pace of the disruption being caused by climate change is something that we should be concerned about and that we need to figure out how to adapt to better, all of that kind of stuff. But one of the things I think that is a real problem and is connected to climate change is the state of the oceans. There are other problems with the oceans in terms of overfishing and, 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 and the tragedy of common stuff, um, but ocean acidification is a problem. And because there's more CO2 in the atmosphere and that leads to more acidification. One of the things, and this isn't a half-baked idea or 12.5% baked idea. I think this is like a nearly 90% baked idea is you would make artificial reefs in a lot of places that would help boost the fish population, but it would, but you could also include, um, you know, limestone, which is one of these comp, one of these substances that actually, I you know, I can never remember what is base and what is alkaline, but whatever, I guess it's base, it would mitigate somewhat against acidification. And I think that would be a really cool idea. I wish some eccentric billionaire, instead of building an island for a bunch of libertarians to live on, would think about doing stuff like that. The 12.5% baked idea is, you know, we're talking, we're, we're seeing how a lot of farmers and ranchers are having to kill their livestock because they can't bring it to market. And I think that's awful in all sorts of ways when people are struggling for, to put food on the table, to just let all of that food go to waste is terrible. And I wish we could figure out the problems with the supply chain, um, to, to fix all of that. But if we can't, right, if we are going to kill millions or tens of millions of pigs or cows or whatever, I would love to talk to, a um, an ocean scientist about this admittedly crazy idea. I said 12.5% baked. What about going pretty far out into the ocean and just dumping it into the ocean rather than burying it or burning it, which is what people are talking about. 
we pull an enormous amount of protein out of the ocean that we do not replace. And if we dumped all of that stuff in there, um, and you have to do it someplace where it doesn't like just wash up on shore too quickly because that would be gross. You got to give the sharks and everything time to eat it or the microbes to decompose it and all that kind of stuff. I just have to think to some extent that would be beneficial. But for all I know, fish are kosher and you add pork, it would be a big problem, whatever. But it's just that's my 12.5% baked idea. So I'll leave it with that. Anyway, I got to hop. Uh, thanks so much for listening um, and indulging me. Um, I hope you find this stuff still worthwhile. Um, I'm, I'm kind of flattered and terrified that, you know, people listen to me just ramble like this. Um, and, um, we are still incredibly grateful for the support that we're getting at the dispatch. Um, as Steve said at this, this dispatch live thing, you're helping put food on our kids' tables and we really are grateful for it. We also think that we're doing something good and noble and important. And we think there's so much more that we can do and that we want to do. So if you're a paid member, we're supremely grateful. If you aren't and can be, that would be awesome. If you can, even if it's just the free stuff, if you could word of mouth, help spread it, that would be great. And, um, and if you can go to um, our sponsors, and use our promo codes. That would be great too. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm digging the Tommy John stuff and that's promo code remnant. And I will talk more about underwear on another podcast. And until then, I'll see you next time. Um, Nick, you can probably cut this very long pause here. Um, it is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.